Chapter 18 continues. Today we begin from the 29th verse. <clears throat> As always, we're still holding strong to the gunas and Krishna will continue his discussion around the gunas. But what you see specific in this chapter, which is slightly different from the other times he's explained them, he's, he's kind of really dividing up a lot of different aspects of our being and showing us the gunas in all those. He starts with the gunas of renunciation. Then he says the gunas of action. Then he says like, these are the gunas of he who performs the action. This is the gunas where the awareness of the action is. This is the gunas that kind of, you know, the intellect that becomes involved when the action is being performed. So he's really trying to show us these many different ways where these gunas play an intrinsic role in our lives. Now, we've been talking about gunas so much, sometimes we forget what the gunas are in fact. So those of you who are here, since I can ask you this question, what do we remember the gunas are? Come on. Huh? Not what, not the three names, but what are they? What is the purpose of the gunas? What do they represent? They represent the degree of separation from spirit. The three, these are these three stages of how close we are or how far we are. That's really what we're trying to tune into. So every time we are look, talking about the guna, sometimes intellectually we lose focus. No, what are we talking? Oh, rajasik, tamasik, and we get more caught up in categorizing rather than just seeing a little bit of a flow it's just degrees of separation the farther i can go the closer i can go i remember the first time in the gita early chapters when krishna introduces the gunas and this is how he expresses them he says sattva is like the smoke that obscures the fire thoda sa hawa a little wind comes and the fire is evident so the separation the veil is really thin it's very subtle it very easily can be overcome, can be dispelled. Rajas is like rust on a mirror. He says you can't see your reflection clearly. So you can't see spirit clearly reflected. But if you put out a little extra energy, that rust can also be cleared out. Of course, he talked about a silver mirror on which there is rust because back then they didn't have glass. And what was Thomas like? A child of in his or her mother's womb which means only time <laughs> you can't get the child out before you can't find spirit in the womb until nine months has passed and in the sense that that obscurity of tamas is usually just a matter of time which means we live in tamas long enough before our own final desire says I need to get out of this and so this is kind of just returning to the essence of how Krishna begins his introduction of the gunas. Let's return now to the gunas from that perspective. So we don't get so caught up in, you know, what are these qualities and do I have them and do I not? Just, all right, how obscured is spirit in me? Is it completely hidden? Is it a little alive? Is it so evident that there's just a very tiny little layer separating me from pure bliss? 29th verse. O winner of wealth, Dhananjay Arjuna, I will now explain at length and singly the threefold divisions of the gunas, this time in relation 
to people's capacity for understanding. So this is now he's trying to give us the gunas in our ability to understand and to fortitude. What is fortitude? Our ability to persevere, the ability to hold and stay true to a course of action. It's, it's like tapasya, really what fortitude is. The ability to just stay in that and keep pushing it daily, something that we're willing to commit to. So even our level of commitment, our level of perseverance has the play of the gunas in it. Our ability to understand has the play of gunas in it. I love over here, it's kind of a little humorous. I'll now explain at length and singly. <laughs> it's kind of a counter it of one another. Because it's really, that's what it is. No matter how many times I explain this to you, what I'm really explaining to you is this single reality. I'm giving it many different ways. I'm trying to help you see it from all these different angles. But I'm giving you that one truth over and over again, singly. That intellect, O Partha Arjuna, is sattvic, which understands the nature of right action and knows when to refrain from action, even if it's right. Which knows what should be done and what should not be done. Which understands the distinction between what ought to be feared as wrong and what ought to be embraced fearlessly as right and dutiful. And between what constitutes bondage and what constitutes the path to liberation. So this is the kind of intellect Krishna says as a sattvic awareness we want to develop. What are the things? What's the defining feature here? The perfect ability to discriminate. In truth, this is the intellect of pure intuition. This is not intellect at all to a certain degree. It's intuitive now. Because what you'll see over here is Krishna doesn't explain to us what is right action, what is wrong action, when to refrain from it. Because it's an intuitive understanding. He's not going to say, Acha, now let me just tell you, this is right action, this is right action, this is right action, this is right action. You know, don't do this, do this. He doesn't expand on this. He's just saying, that intellect is sattvic. Who knows this? And it depends on us to fully know this. It is our intuitive ability to be in perfect discrimination. This is, remember, when we talked about the different uh, characters of the Mahabharata who represent all these psycho-spiritual qualities, Yogananda called them mental citizens of our own consciousness. Pandu, the father of the Pandavas, represents perfect discriminating intelligence. This is the quality, that sattvic quality. That is why Pandu was, what was his name based on? White, perfectly pure. His brother, on the other hand, is the mind, blind, Dhritarashtra, fixed nation, fixed reality is only available, whereas Pandu could see the fluidity of what's right here, what's wrong here, when should I act, when should I refrain, isn't this one of the biggest uh, questions, when should I put out willpower, when should I surrender to God? You know, I mean, that's, and there is no answer because even Krishna himself isn't saying, let me now tell you what is what. Because it's always intuitive and it's always based on what is before us in that moment. The dividing factor is always what's going to uplift you and what's going to draw you downward. Always that becomes the question and that's where he ends with. 
the difference between what constitutes bondage and what constitutes the path to liberation. Now, to know what takes you to liberation, I can intellectually know uh, to love will pay, take me higher and to hate will take me lower. To be kinder is going to be much better than to be rude. <laughs> but this is not the knowing. This is also then the ability and this is where the fortitude comes in. That's why he said, I'm also going to tell you about the intellect and about understanding because we all understand. So on one hand, you might sit here and say, oh, I think I have sattvic understanding because I know I can see right and wrong. But seeing right and wrong is not really what Krishna is talking about. That's why the fortitude comes in. After understanding, is there an actual ability to follow through? Or when anger takes over, then your fortitude goes away. When judgment takes over, your fortitude goes away. When laziness takes over, then your fortitude goes away. So that's another aspect of this. Don't look at it purely intellectually. Yes, you may understand certain of these concepts. So let's see what Rajas is then. Oh, Partha Arjuna. That intellect is influenced by Rajas, which causes one to perceive dharma and adharma distortedly. Here, which means righteous or unrighteous action. We're not quite sure. Rajas means a slightly confused intellect, which is more or less us. We're always, is this the right path? There's always a little doubt. We're always never sure. And Oftentimes, we just have to take certain actions in order to see what the result will be just to understand, did I take the right path or not? Mm -hmm. And then hopefully have the humility to change or to backtrack or to just recognize, all right, that wasn't it, but you know, now I know. So Rajas, in fact, for the majority of us is where we are. We're not fully sure in each stage. I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if it's my desire or is it an intuitive calling? I don't know if it's the voice of my ego or I don't know if it's the voice of my guru. And so when the intellect is usually rajasic, you remember previously what did Krishna say about rajasic influence? He said, sattvic influence is that which sees all the varied forms as singular. Rajasic influence is when you see division and separation. So because that's the primary influence in our lives, therefore our intellect will always be confused because we as two separate realities and we're not able to see life as one continuous flow of awareness. And he says, and not only is it that you perceive dharma and adharma distortedly, you also perceive duty and undutiful and undutiful action. We're not sure. Mera duty kya hai? How many people say, I don't know if I'm a householder or on one hand I want to give my life to God, on the other hand I have these responsibilities. I'm not sure ki mera actual dharma kya hai? What's my true duty in this life? What's my responsibility here? We were talking about, I don't know in which class, but we were talking about how some people want to leave their jobs so that they can give their lives more fully to God, which is a beautiful sentiment. But oftentimes we were talking about, you might see in their cases that the very qualities they were developing through their job, which was that perseverance, which was overcoming their likes and dislikes, which was learning to cooperate and work in teams with people, even if it was externally imposed on them, but those qualities were something they were developing. But now having no longer that environment and now having given themselves to a spiritual path, 
Sometimes they go become more complacent. They become a little lazier. They become a little more arrogant. They so they're now, I don't know which was right and which is wrong. From the surface, from the external, I'll say, oh, the spiritual path's much better than the material path. But what is duty and what isn't duty is also a very, very subtle understanding. So that's where most of us are. We're not 100% sure all the time. Unfortunately, that's why we call upon the great ones and say, you know, help, help. me, tell me, what's happening here? You know, that's, that's where we want to find that attunement. Even with a Rajasic intellect, I can draw upon that sattvic quality of the gurus, of the great ones. And finally, of course, he says, that intellect is tamasic, which enveloped in ignorance, thinks that wrong is right. Now, you're completely Rajasik may at least you want to know what's right, but you just don't know. In Tamasik, you think wrong is right. And I think about where somebody says, it's right that I get angry at him, you know, he deserves it. Swamiji gives this comical example of somebody justifying, well, if he didn't lock his door, you know, the cars of his door, so he's uh, is justified that somebody comes and steals from him because he didn't do it. You know, so that's where we use something that's wrong to justify why certain things happen, where we blame other people. Every time I think about Thomas, I don't know why somehow, you know, the, the consciousness of politicians somehow keep coming into my where They just come out there and they're just all about blaming the other people and getting everybody excited about the fact that we are blaming other people. And now everyone wants to blame other people because it's all their fault. They ruined our country and now they, and it's right for us to shout at them and it's right for us to, you know, degrade them. That's very tamasic. So when in our own mind, we start to justify our wrong actions, that is the tamasic intellect. You might have great reasons, but if you ever choose a lower tendency over a higher tendency and then justify that lower tendency, that is the tamasic energy. And how often do we experience that and express that? Constantly in our minds, in fact, we try our best to justify our lower tendencies. We spend a lot of our, of our brain capacity in that process. And judges everything distortedly. clarity to a tamasic individual. What's what? And not only what's what, very confident that my way is the right way, irrespective of whether or not it makes sense on the scale of moving up or moving down. In the matter of steadfastness or fortitude, sattvic fortitude depends on steadying the mind by yoga meditation and keeping the energy of both the body and senses controlled by pranayama. So when we talk about putting energy out, that energy that is sattvic, being constantly put up, being persevered, is the energy used to meditate and to maintain a perfect equilibrium of body, senses, of the mind, to pranayam, not necessarily just the pranayam that Narayan was talking, breathing exercise, through control of your life force. Which means, as Krishna said in a previous, where the prana and the apan are neutralized through essentially the practice of internalized Kriya Yoga, whatever the particular Kriyas anybody may be practicing, which does that. So, Sattvic perseverance is only that 
which is being used every day, day after day, day after day to stay steadfast in yoga, meditation, pranayam, stillness, centeredness. And that becomes that quality. Rajasic fortitude is manifests itself in clinging fast, whether to duty, to objects of desire or to possessions and demanding for oneself the fruit of every effort one expends. So it could be wonderful things, it could be attachments, it could be desires, it doesn't matter. Rajas matlab, main karunga, I'm going to put out a lot of energy, but jo bhi main karunga, I want, I want the result, which includes our spiritual practices. You know, I'll meditate, but mujhe milega kya meditation. I'm not willing to be fortitudious, I mean, I don't want to persevere in my meditation. I want to know what I'll get from it. And until and unless you don't convince me that I have a benefit from this, many So then naturally our spiritual practices also have a rajasic quality to them. Even our own duty, we will only do if we know and understand what the benefit of that duty is. If I explain to you, you see, by your work, you are developing willpower and you're doing this and you, and then if you realize, because your own intuition has not told you, this is right for me. When you have to be convinced this is right for you, that's still Rajasik. Even though you choose it, because there's still confusion. There's no clarity. Tamasic fortitude manifests as addiction to sleep, Obsession with whatever one fears, utter absorption in grief, abandonment to despair, and overweening arrogance. So you see, Thomas is very, very extreme. Whatever we are experiencing in that moment, we take it to the absolute highest. If there's a fear you are experiencing, all you can talk about is that fear, all you're thinking about is that fear, all your mind is kind of persevering and holding that fear as the uppermost thought and activity in your mind. That's perseverance. When we go into a mood and we are want to stay in that mood, it takes actual energy to hold in that mood and say, because I want to stay in it. Because it helps you feel that you are right. Why do we go into a mood? It's so that others understand that they did something wrong. That's the only reason we go into a mood. And so we have to persevere to stay in the mood just till to prove this point ki tune kuch kiya tabhi main mood mein hu ya kuch hua hai mere saath tabhi main mood mein hu and that takes energy from us to bring our energy down in this it's not happening naturally it happens naturally the first time somebody says something bad to you you get a little affected your energy goes down no problem master said you are not responsible for the first thought but you are responsible for the second thought Means, okay, I get triggered, I get a little upset, but now to maintain that upset is your choice and takes energy from you. To stay in that mood, stay in that fear, constantly talking about how I'm not good enough, this is what I like, dislike, why is this person always like this? Oh, as we were talking in a previous example we gave of a lady who had gone through some surgery and would always bring up how hard that was and how painful that was. And when Yogananda asked her, when was this? She said, oh, this was 30 years ago. Actually, I double checked and it was Swami's. Swami? Swami shared that story. Okay, thank you. Swami said, it's just for us, they're all the, yeah, same, the same, but yeah, same, but in case. you know, that's how long ago it was. Yeah. 
I mean, that's how we are. We're just, we carry, we enjoy. I've had a toothache this morning and I've mentioned it at least six times to different people. And I want to persevere in establishing the fact that I have a toothache because I want people to know what I'm going through and I want to experience and live in that experience and stay in that experience. And these are so subtle because we don't think about it. I think I'm just sharing information with my friends. But subtly, I just, I, I want to. This is what I'm, this pain I'm going through. This is the grief I'm going through. This is the fear I'm going through. This is the loss I'm going through. And I want to live in it. And that kind of perseverance is tamasic. Also something we do as often as <laughs> we are able to. And it takes rajas to lift us out of that. And then it takes sattva to lift us beyond rajas. And that's the beauty of these gunas. Just to know, isse upar kaise uthu, isse upar kaise uthu. Now hear me, O best of the Bharatas, the three kinds of happiness. Now happiness ke bhi gunas hai. Transcendent above, above which is supreme bliss. So bliss is three guna rahitam, beyond the three gunas. That's the state all of us are trying to actually experience. In every happiness that we seek, in every state that we're trying to lift ourselves up to, bliss is the goal. But most of us stay within the realm of the three gunas of, the, of happiness. Supreme bliss is the consequence of continuous inwardness of mind through meditation. The more interiorized the mind can be held, the more this bliss will be a continuous flow of awareness for us. Why interiorized? Because externalized mind is dependent on the gunas and internalized mind is not dependent on the gunas the more we live in the world the more we live on our own the surface the more we externalize our awareness the gunas will immediately come into play the more our ability to withdraw and interiorize into the shushumna where we cancel the era and the pingala that's where the singular experience of bliss lives in bliss alone does one achieve the end of all sorrow. So even while you experience happiness, even if it's sattvic happiness, that does not end your sorrow. It'll still have a quality of the opposite duality at play, even at that level. So let's see now what these happinesses are. That human happiness, which is called sattvic, is attained through what seems in the beginning like poison, but in the end is like nectar and leads to the clear perception of the self. What seems in the beginning like poison, but in the end turns out to be nectar. What does that mean? Everything we do on the spiritual path is a little hard for us. Doesn't it? I mean, it's not, it doesn't naturally come. I mean, how many people do we, you know, they've been with us for years and even now if you ask them, it's just like, it's not natural for them to meditate. Even now, they choose certain days to meditate and choose certain days not to meditate. The moment a little hardship comes, the moment any little change in their schedule happens, the moment any friend decides he has a birthday party, meditation's gone. Because it feels a little like, this is very You know, there's a bitter taste to the effort we have to put. Similarly, as we were talking about, how many times people ask us, especially those who are working and those who are in, you know, certain leadership positions, they'll say, you know, it's like, it's really hard to be kind all the time. 
and in the beginning you say that you know it's very hard because people then they take you know they start taking you for granted they walk all over you and it is hard it does feel like poison when somebody is rude to you and you have to be kind <laughs> the words aren't coming out the feeling just isn't coming out because it feels like poison at that time but we are not doing anything Remember we talked about forgiveness just on Tuesday. What was that quality of forgiveness? Swamiji says, forgiveness is not about what it does for others. See, this is where Rajas comes in. I will be kind if this other person is also kind to me. Then I'm happy to be kind. But in this particular case, there is no I will be kind because. I'm kind, I'm kind, I'm kind, I'm kind. Until the poison of the effort we have to put out transforms into the nectar of that sattvic happiness and the sattvic happiness is happiness that lasts it is a happiness that is that is underneath activity it's not a happiness caused by activity it is the happiness that sustains through all activities and that is why the spiritual path is hard because we have to first feel like we're doing going through a certain poisonous a certain hard process in order to eventually change that into the sweetness and that nectar of happiness this is where we how we neutralize duality you see we go through what seems hard to transform it into eventually what becomes the most easy way to be eventually you become kindness where you don't have to even think for a moment should i choose kindness it just comes as the most natural thing no matter how rude somebody is no matter how horrible somebody is you won't even consider for a moment to be rude that's that state of sattva of that sattvic happiness we want to experience and it takes a lot of effort and it seems very counterintuitive. That happiness is rajasic, which arises from contact of the senses with their objects. We know this really well. It seems like nectar in the beginning, but in the end is like poison. Why? Because it drains us. Anything we experience through the senses is going to drain you. Anything. And so, if you depend purely on your senses to give you happiness, that momentary happiness is going to be loss of actual prana from your being. And as long as prana is oozing out of us, as long as our life force is not under our control, happiness is impossible to truly experience. Pleasure is possible. Momentary states of excitement, enthusiasm and joy are possible. But happiness as a state of being is not. That elusive happiness is termed tamasic, which begins and ends in the deluded stupor of oversleep, of drunkenness and slovenliness. Slovenliness, I have to look that up, is when you're unkept and dirty, where you don't much care for your appearance and for cleanliness. And again, how we're like, isn't that how easily it can You've got people out there being renunciates, but then you just see them as, from that perspective, I've renounced it all. But mostly what they're just doing is, I don't want to put out any energy. I just want to stay as low as possible. 
oversleep, as he says, drunkenness, where we want to dull our senses to the maximum. And I, I see this as you don't need sleep or drunkenness or slovenliness. You just have you ever seen where like conversations are going on or things are happening and we just like check out, you know, we're just like nowhere and just in a state of we just close, we just shut down ourselves and we're not wanting to put out even the energy it takes to give to whatever is happening before us. That is this hypnotism or the obsession to constantly go subconscious as well. When people are around you and some energy is happening, we have to give energy at that time. Master talks about, we had some messages given and one beautiful message was, be intensely active throughout the day, but the moment your activity ends, shut down all your sense telephones and withdraw back into spirit. But while activity is going on, that's not when we do that. That is when we don't want to give energy. And so we dull ourselves and we go into this little vague haze where we don't quite know what's going on. And so we have to be mindful because on one hand you'll say, I'm just, you know, going back into my center. But that's not what we are doing. We're not going into our center. We're going into a subconscious state of awareness. There is no one in the material world nor among the gods in the astral heavens who is free from the three qualities or gunas born of prakriti, cosmic nature, the manifestation of God. Again, he's reiterating, none of us are beyond the influence or the control of the gunas, nor the gods in the astral world, which means when we leave this physical body and we go into a subtler realm, even there the gunas continue to define our expressions, our devotions, our intellect, our actions, our influences, our awareness, our words, everything is being defined by the gunas. O scorcher of foes, Arjuna, the duties of Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, as also of Shudras are inborn and diverse according to the gunas uppermost in their natures. So once again, Krishna comes back to the caste system, which is very interesting. And now he's redefining the caste based on the gunas. We talked about the caste very early on, on based similarly on the gunas, where we we're talking just about the consciousness each of us have. Now he's talking about the gunas are deciding what your caste is. And when we're saying caste, I don't really mean that external reality that we've created. It's not hereditary because our gunas are not hereditary. And it's based primarily on which is the predominant guna in you. That makes you kind of, how is it that I am going to express myself in this world? This is what the caste system is. What is the outward way I'm going to express that which is predominant in me so that I'm able to take the next step higher? And what are the four castes? The Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Shudra, Shudras. And what are the four aspects of the Gunas? Tamas for the Shudra, Sattva for the Brahmin. For the Vaishya it is Rajotamas, which means energy is being put out, but more towards the ego, towards a lower expression. And Rajosattva, which is the Kshatriya. Energy is put, being put out, but energy to uplift. 
Now we don't have much time today, so we won't go. Now he's going to go into each of these castes. The next one is the inherent duties of a Brahmin are the inherent duties of the Kshatriya are, and this is really very beautiful because it gives us a little sense of again, which caste do I truly belong to? <laughs> you know, again, not a caste of kya ho rai, but the caste of what do I need to do? What am I expressing right now? And what do I need to do to change what I am expressing? Now that's going to be a very interesting conversation and a discussion to have and one which needs a little bit more time. So we'll kind of close here. So we've gone through the gunas now. I think, let's see, I don't know if he's going to return back to the gunas. He probably will. He's, he enjoys them very much. But we've talked about today the intellect, fortitude and happiness. And it'll be just helpful for us to tune into this, these states. When we're joyful, when we're uplifted, when we're happy, it'll be fun for us to tune into no, what's causing this happiness? Is it just a state of my being? Is it caused because something happened and now I'm up, therefore I know I will also be down? Or is it this need to be more subconscious? I want to talk for a moment about that. Sorry, if no, just if please, it, that's all right. Please, please. Because I remember something Swamiji wrote there. He says, because we've come up from animal consciousness, we still hold the memory of that state. The animal state is primarily subconscious. And in the subconscious state, there is a certain flow of awareness. That's why animals live primarily out of instinct, which could be, you can say, almost mirrors intuition. But it's not intuitive as if it's coming from a higher source. It's intuitive as it's coming from the subconscious mind because it's based on pure memory being passed down through generations. We break that mold where we are not dependent on the memory purely of the past, but we have the ability to reshape based on the memory of the past on how we now want the direction of the future to go, which animals can't do. They are bound and subject by the memories being passed on of the subconscious mind. But because we remember that state of the subconscious mind, that's why we enjoy returning to it again and again. And that's the border where tamas, the animal consciousness, and the tamas in the human consciousness meet. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? That we can regress so low that we're just above the shift we've made from the animal consciousness into the human consciousness. And to be, uh, to be mindful of the fact that there's still that pull in that direction that exists in all of us. Still there is a desire to express and be in the subconscious state more than to be in the superconscious state. Because the superconscious state feels like poison when we are having to express it. And we don't stay in it because we don't have fortitude. We don't stay in it long enough where the poison becomes nectar and therefore how easily our practices drop, how quickly we change from one path to the other, how easily we say, you know, kindness bhaad mein jaye, let me, you know, get upset when I can and so on and so forth. So these are just fun things to be truly mindful of. Other than that, the progression is gradual. We're going to just change and shift very simply, naturally, organically based on the amount of effort we put out. So let's not kind of keep breaking ourselves up into these gunas or start judging whether ourselves or others based on these gunas, but just recognize that this flow is something 
that we need to be mindful of, especially since Krishna has chosen to spend so much time on this subject. Thank you. Every time this section comes, um, really, you have no idea like how I'm going to put all these teachings <laughs> into a practical day-to-day, -day, um, you know, way of living the Gita, really. So anyway, today Krishna was talking about the masic temperaments and tendencies, and he was um, explaining the extremes that we go through when we are channeling that tamasic consciousness. At the same time, he is implying the importance to be super busy, super aware and sharp, always around us when we are surrounded with other people, when we can just, we have to give our 100%. So we have these two realities that we need to constantly balance so we don't go to these extremes. And I was thinking that one practice that can help us tremendously to remind ourselves um, to balance ourselves throughout the day is the Hongso practice. Because it helps us to have moments of pauses, moments of breaks to interiorize the mind to come back to your center and then bring that consciousness into everything we do. So I was thinking that perhaps we can experiment a little bit more with the Hong So technique throughout this week. Perhaps, perhaps not. What about if every two hours after giving ourselves fully, completely, wholeheartedly to that particular <coughs> activity we are called to do, we stop for a moment and practice the Hong So technique for 10 minutes to interiorize our senses, to interiorize our mind, to detach ourselves from that extreme activity, come back to our center, and then after those 10 minutes, come back to whatever activity you have to do. So I would say, let's do this. Every two hours, let's all stop and practice Hong So for 10 minutes. And throughout the day, the beauty of this is that once we start our morning, and we meditate. By the time the day goes by, at the end of that day, if we have not practiced a little bit in between, it's very hard because we get tired, we get drained, we have gone to the completely opposite place where we should be. So might as well to keep reminding ourselves those little pauses so by the time when the day is over, you feel refreshed, you feel that you have not, uh, your energy has not been depleted completely through all the responsibilities you had to fulfill. So I think 
the more constant regular practice of Hongso throughout the day can give us that sadvic consciousness of not feeling all the time being pulled by these different extremes even mentally i would like to be meditating i would like to be at the ashram i would like to have a more peaceful life but guess what i have to face all this but in between this battle of the mind mostly we just stop every two hours and just bring ourselves to that center I think by the end of the day, we won't feel that we are missing anything, that we, we don't need to do big changes in our lives to keep centering ourselves even in the battle of activity. So this is my challenge all right. for this week. Every two hours, we all stop for 10 minutes, practice Hongso. If you have not learned Hongso, I would say please Google it, search, uh, follow our guided meditations on Hongso. And next, next Wednesday, I think we are going to have also a free class on how to meditate and we will be giving the Hongso. Stay tuned. If you don't know Hongso, simply watch your breath that will also give you the same effect. It will help to interiorize your mind. So for all of us, I hope this is a good challenge and keep deepening our relationship with the Hongso practice and what really does to our senses, our consciousness in relation uh, to the gunas. All right, lovely. Let's just do a little chanting of Om. And even as we're 